You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Hey everybody, welcome. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Friday the 29th of May 2020. Thank you all for tuning in on tonight's program. We're going to be looking at a few different things. Starting off with our going through the Psalter, encouraging you all to sing the Psalms if you've never done so before, and uh, hopefully um, point you to the direction of a few things you can do in order to be able to sing through the Psalms, regardless of your theological conviction. And um, we hope that these teachings going through the Psalms will be of benefit to you and will encourage you, especially during these times. But I think whatever position people may have in worship, the Bible does say to sing the Psalms. And I'm talking about singing the Psalms. I don't have a copy of the Psalter in front of me, but I would encourage you to get a metrical Psalter sold by Trinitarian Bible Society and um, go through every single day. All the Psalms speak of Christ. Not just the obvious ones like Psalm 22, Psalm 100, and things like that. Um, we're going to be going through Psalm 19 today. And uh, later on, after we go through one of the Psalms, we're going to be looking at um, the the Westminster Larger Catechism. Feel free tonight to um, ask questions away. I think the other program, I'm going to be doing more critiques and stuff like that. I'm not rigidly sticking on that but uh feel free if you're in the chat room to ask questions pertaining to this topic and um especially we're going to be looking at um general revelation revelation from nature creation and we're also going to be looking at the difference between special revelation we're going to be looking later on then at the trinity so this kind of all ties in, and um, what I really believe that Psalm 19 is teaching in regards to the heavens declare the glory of God, and uh, hopefully you'll see in a while why I, why I emphasize that. Um, sometimes we can kind of just talk about, oh, well, there's creation just shows that there's a God, where I believe plainly that it's the heavens declare the glory of, of God, of God himself, the God who created the heavens and the earth, not just the fact that there's just one creator. It points towards his attributes, his goodness, his kindness. Um, he's a God of order, a just God. It's been put like this. Again, this teaching is nothing new to me. Lloyd-Jones once said that there's enough information within you to condemn you, just not enough to save you. We need, obviously, the Bible, the scriptures, in order for to get the gospel. But the person who's on the other side of the planet has never seen the Bible, knows because of the law of God written in their hearts, okay, they, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they're unregenerate, they fight against that, they hold the truth and unrighteousness, again, referring to uh, Romans 1.18. But at the same time... Um, they're without excuse. They know there's a creator and they reject him. Unless they've been born again, they're never going to embrace him. And that would be the same for anyone, even if you'd heard the gospel. And uh, and again, as we go through this, feel free to ask questions. Going to try and keep this program to an hour. Um, so um, tonight, especially the Friday night one, but um, if it goes over, it goes over. Okay, Psalm 19, and we're just going to lead with a word of prayer um, to bless those who are listening live and also those people who listen to the program, either to Sermon Audio or MegidoRadio.com or iTunes or wherever you listen from. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, as we read through your precious, holy, and infallible word that you would bless this psalm, Psalm 19, and Lord, that... Um, we would rejoice at the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God. O oh Lord, we pray that you would bless us and guide us, and may your face shine upon us for your great name's sake and for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 19, let us hear God's word. 
the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their works to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the end, to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, may the Lord bless his precious and infallible Word. Now, the beginning of this is dealing with largely with what is called general revelation. The heavens, and we know in the beginning from Genesis 1 and other parts of Scripture as well, that God created the heavens and the earth. But this creation declares the glory of God. It's a pity I don't have the 1650 in front of me here because it renders it in a kind of a different way. But the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the heavens, the, the expanse, shows his handiwork. The shows the work of his hands. And there's a sense in which these words are saying it, it preaches the glory of God. There is no way of coming away from this glorious creation. You go for a walk, you look around, and you see his, the work of his hands. This amazing creation, and the more science and the more we understand about it, the more we realize the fine balance in which this world is on. And and it's only in the hands of a creator God as described in the Bible. Does any of this make any sense? And there's, apart from the scriptures, the sources of information that we have about God, we've been creating God's image. We're God's image bearers. We may fight against that since the fall of Adam. We may suppress that, but it is true. Genesis 2.15, oh, sorry, Romans 2.15 talks about how the Gentiles even have the law of God written in their hearts. But of course, they fight against that. And we have creation. From the creation, the more you study, the more you look, the more you, you look at it, the more you see the absurdity of the alternative theories like evolution and all this kind of thing. That... um. There was a principal, what was a Michael J. Bay, he, he, who is not a Christian, by the way, but he's, um, he's a proponent of intelligent design. And again, this is not really my area, but I remember years ago, he had a, a concept called irreducible complexity, where very, very simply, all of the parts of the mousetrap had to be in place in order for, say, there's four parts of the mousetrap, they all have to be in place. You can't just have these gradual steps in between. Uh, and when you look at the complexity of the human cell, 
the the simple cell, so to speak. The more you look, it all points towards the glorious God of the scriptures, the one true God, not just the kind of a, here's a God, no, no, the true and living God. Uh, very simple. Notice how it, the glory of God, not just the glory of a God, and it's very, very specific. And then uh, you see kind of similar enough language in Romans chapter 1, which kind of ties in with this idea as well. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Um, pull it out there now that I'm thinking about it. Romans chapter 1. For, for the and the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as is written the just shall live by faith for the wrath of God verse 18 is revealed from heaven the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness because that they may be known of God as manifest in them again that's the the fact that they're God's image bearers for God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen from the creation before there was even before Moses wrote scripture or anything else like that. His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that were made, even his eternal God, even his eternal power and Godhead and that word Godhead is divinity. Now, so from creation, okay, you might say, well, Aver the man is not going to see that. Yes, he suppresses the truth. He fights against that. Absolutely. But there's nothing wrong with creation. From the point of, obviously, there's the curse and things like that. But there's nothing wrong with the information. We, man, suppresses it and fights against that. I know people, different schools of apologetics, kind of have a few quibbles here and there, but the problem is with man. Not, not that he cannot see from creation that there is a God. And not just that there is a God, that it points, it glorifies, it declares the glory of God. And the firmness shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night after night reveals knowledge. So in all these things, our light has gone out through all the, the line has gone out through all the earth. And then, skipping ahead a little bit here, and it's going then more towards special revelation. Verse 7. Now, the law of God is the Ten Commandments. It is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It is the very character of who God is. It's summarized in other ways, by the way. All, you know, the, the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. First table of the law. And the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments 5 through to 10. But it is the same law, that eternal law that never changes. That law, which is written by the finger of God on tables of stone, different from those temporary ceremonial laws given to, to Israel, you know, for example, the various Sabbaths were given to Israel, but it was not the same as that one day in seven Sabbath was right back to creation week. And also a Sabbath never changes. In eternity, we have an eternal Sabbath. So this law of God is perfect. Converting the soul. No, we can't keep the law of God. Of course not. Because we're sinners. But it convicts. It shows a sinner that they are, that they've fallen short of the glory of God. The testimony of the Lord is pure at making wise the simple. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is wonderful. We are to love the law. To love the law is to love God. To love the law is to love the character of God, and to love the character of God is to love God himself. There's a, 
there's a false ditch that we can often fall into. And one side of the ditch is antinomianism, and then the other side of the ditch is neonomianism. The, the antinomian ditch is where, well, the law doesn't matter anymore because we've been saved by grace. Yes, we've been saved by grace, and apart from the works of the law, of course. But because our hearts have been changed, now we love the law and wish to follow after because it is the very character of God. And what does love look like? Commandment keeping. So, um, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I mean, we see the law of God. It, one of the signs that you're born again, that you're regenerated by the Spirit of God, you see the law of God, and it makes your heart rejoice. These tests, the statutes of the law, they're right. You see that they're right, and you rejoice in these things. And this is something, Lord willing, will help in as you grow in the knowledge of the truth in terms of assurance that you are truly a believer. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. For the sake of time, I, this is such a wonderful psalm, and I, I, I just, I, I love it dearly. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter than honey, and the honeycomb. I think, I think in our, in our day when there's so much sugar, uh, processed sugar in every single food substance, we don't understand that in the full sense, but um, that was the sweetest thing you could get back then. Let's look at the last verse. Let the words of my mouth... Now, at the end of it, this psalm of David, David is seeking grace. He starts off with general revelation, talks about the heavens and how they declare the glory of God, and the days are sweet. They, they reveal knowledge. They show forth... Uh, for example... If you, if you love a certain composer in music and you study that piece of music, you understand more about how amazing, if it's an amazing piece, how amazing the composer was. Or if you study a book by a writer, you understand more about the writer themselves. So the, these opening few verses are kind of like general revelation. Then later on, it talks more, more about the law of God. Um, and these statutes shown, revealed in the scriptures, special revelation, it's called by theologians. And then at the end, David is seeking grace. In the verses 12 to 14, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. There's almost like a sense in which he, he sees the glory of creation and the wonders of God, and then he looks upon how wonderful God's law is, and then he's like, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. At the end, he feels undone. Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. There's often passages like this, is there not? Um, you know, people who want to say, well, some parts of the Psalms are not talking about Christ and all this. Our sin, those who believe in Jesus Christ, his people, was dealt with on the cross. There was a substitution. He took the punishment and by imputation took our sin. That's how it can speak of Christ. That, that mystical union, he represents us. So when we have those kind of parts of course, we focus mainly on our sinfulness. Christ obviously never, ever sinned or could sin. But David is here saying, verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, and not just that, but the thoughts of my heart, my desires with the things that I seek after, not the things that people see. 
be acceptable before God. How often do we pray that? How often do we hope that? Not just that people are going to think we're holy enough and fantastic, or whatever the case may be, or that we're just outwardly good enough, but that our thought life, our heart, would be acceptable before God. Oh Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Again, it's a wonderful psalm. I'd encourage you to to sing through it, and um, I would dare say that it would encourage you in really dark times, because we're facing dark times, and for fear of repeating myself over and over again, I feel like one of the problems of the church today is the lack of singing the psalms. Will you find great saints in church history who never sung the psalms? Yes. But we're the anomaly. Honestly, I know Martin Luther wrote those, you know, our, our mighty fortress is our God and things like that. But you have to realize the Lutheran history, as much as we're, we're so grateful for men, even Melanchthon, it, I say even Melanchthon, but Melanchthon, of course, no one's perfect. Um, Martin Luther, some other theologians within the Lutheran fold, we, we praise God for and we thank God for. However, at the same time, Lutheranism went one way, more or less, and the Reformed theology went another way. I'm not an expert on Lutheranism. So, you know, you'd have to kind of, there's the Luther of Luther, and then there's the Luther of uh, Lutheranism of later Lutherans, and even early Luther, Martin Luther, late Martin Luther, which you'd expect for a man who wrote apparently 60-something volumes. He wrote a lot. So I digress. Okay, so um, let's look now at the Westminster Larger Catechism. We are continuing on. And again, don't be shy. Feel free to leave any message uh, with, you know, within reason <laughs> in the live chat. Um, about the, the topic which we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the Doctrine of the Trinity right now, and um, so if you have any question on the Trinity, I mean, always be, my, my voice would be, when, when dealing with the Trinity, always be cautious. Always be cautious. Um. Make sure this topic has been, and, and areas around the deity of Christ and things like that have really been hashed out over church history. For the first couple hundred years of the church. And you'll see a few funky statements from early church fathers and stuff like that. And you can see because of what we're attempting with human language to describe the fact that God is, in one sense, one. He is one. There is only one God. There is not two gods, as we dealt with in question eight. Are, they more than, are, are there more gods than one? We're not polytheists. And that is quite contrary to the scriptures. There is one God and one God alone. But then we're getting down to persons or personas. Different words have been used, and you know, from the Greek, hypostasis and um, subsistence. I think Calvin preferred, but persons that there are d distinctions within the Trinity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. But these three are one in substance. So that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Uh, questions, probably going to do all the questions 9 to 11 because there's a lot there to cover. And I also want to tie in as well. Before we do question nine of the larger Westminster Larger Catechism, you can't know 
apart from special revelation, that God is triune. But you, but creation does show forth the glory of God. God is one. We know that there is one God. But it's only through the scriptures that we can know that God is triune. We, natural revelation is limited in what we can know and what we can derive. Uh, older Reformed theologians would spend quite a number of pages in their systematic theologies going through this, the light of nature and things like that. So question nine, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true, eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Okay, you're going to go through this, try and go through this slowly, with reference to a few men through church history, J.G. Voss's um, the Westminster Larger Catechism commentary. It's actually surprisingly difficult to get a commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. And these three are one true, again, one in one sense, three in another. Of one true eternal God, one God. And the same in substance. Now, just before we get on, a person might ask, is this contrary to reason. I just want to quote J.G. Voss on this. It's very good on this. He says this, Is the doctrine of the Trinity contrary to reason? No, it is not contrary to reason, but it is above human reason. It is not contrary to reason, but it is above human reason. We can't comprehend it. With our finite minds, it is not contrary to logic, it is not contrary to reason, it is above our faculties. We cannot comprehend it. If we go with human logic, we're going to deny far more than the Trinity, and you end up where the Socinians went, the Uni later Unitarians, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, Many of the liberals, human reason cannot square with it. The miracles, for example, say, ah, oh, that couldn't have happened, so therefore it didn't happen. So that's the logic we're, we're there. So it says here in the Westminster Larger Catechism, the same in substance, the same in substance, the, 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 the Nicene controversy, the, the Nicene Creed, um, Councils, the two major councils, 381 AD, it was a 325 AD, uh, in the fourth century, controversy over, oh, was it homoousius or homoousius? These are Greek terms. Homo means the same. Homoi means similar. The Arians were arguing for Christ was of a similar substance. Homo, the Orthodox Trinitarians believed in the same substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. And that's very important as well, that they are distinguished. The Father, for example, did not die on the cross. And none of them, the Holy Spirit is not lesser in glory and power than God the Father. We need to be very careful with regards to human logic and trying to place our human logic into understanding the Trinity. There are certain Trinitarian errors that have crept in in doing this. The eternal uh, was it ESS, the eternal submission of the Son, uh, dangerous. <laughs> To say the least, there's a difference between the ontological trinity, 
okay? And the economic trinity. In the economic trinity, God the Son was sent by God the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both of them, but that is in the economic trinity. But from all eternity past, this is not the case. So there's a difference between the ontological in terms of who they are. They are equal in substance, glory, power. They are one. But they are distinguished by their personal properties. There's a great quote I, hear, I have here from David Dixon. David Dixon was a 17th century Scottish covenanter. Uh, he was involved, I believe, in during the 1638, um, yeah, the the, uh, the 1638 assembly in Glasgow, if I'm not mistaken, and also one of the Westminster divines. Anyway, he says this on the Trinity in his commentary on the Westminster. Confession. It is ev it is also it is evident also that the the Father, Son, and Spirit are really distinct from one another, and are three persons. They are indeed in respect of their essence, which is indivisibly communicable to them, one and the same God, but considered personal. They differ really, for the Father is not the Son, neither is he that sits upon the throne the Lamb, neither the Father nor the Spirit were incarnate. But the Son, who died and was buried, which can be said of none but of a person. It can be said that the Father died. No, it, be careful here. It cannot be said that the Father died or that the Spirit died. Next, it is not the, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, as the Son is the Son of God. So he says, next, is it not the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, as the Son is the Son of God? And that suppose a real distinction. Personally, this must do it also. You know, some people might throw up, well, but have an issue perhaps about the term persons. But there is the personal distinctions between each member of the Godhead. Now, if the Father, David Dixon writes, now if the Father be God and the Son be God and the Spirit be God also, who have one and the same divine nature and essence, indivisibly communicated to them, and so if there be but one God and yet these three really distinct, then they must be distinct persons in respect of their personal properties, seeing they are persons and distinct. You can read this if you want to read more on this. This is a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith called Truth's Victory Over Error, published by Banner of Truth. I haven't gone through in massive detail, but um, I've enjoyed it so far, what I have gone through. So it's very important that we maintain the oneness, one true God. We are not polytheists, but at the same time, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And there are distinctions between them. The Son died, but the Holy Spirit did not, nor did God the Father. If we don't maintain that distinction, we fall into errors like Sabellianism or modalism, and there's... There are some modern-day modalists within the Pentecostal movement. Um, T.D. Jakes is one well-known modalist, and there was a controversy a couple of years ago in the Elephant Room. I can't even remember now. It was something about Mark Driscoll, back when Mark Driscoll was still being listened to for some odd reason. But, um, yeah. So let's look now at question 10. Question 10, looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. And again, keep urging as you look through this doctrine that you do it carefully because we're dealing with God himself and who he is. 
Question 10. What are the personal properties of the three persons of the Godhead? Answer. Question 10. It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And again, we've got to be very, very careful here how we understand the, the word that's translated into English, beget, monogenes, um, how do we understand that? Eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father, and the Son from all eternity. There's a certain sense that we just have to just accept that. The danger is, and this is where Trinitarian heresies come in, and it's like somebody, somewhere, that's not going to be good enough. Um, just quote something here from uh, J.G. Voss. He talks about the word beget. What is the meaning of the word begets in speak of the Trinity? This word is the nearest there is in the human language to set forth the relation between God the Father and God the Son. Is there more? How can we... You see, we can demonstrate from the rest of Scripture that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equal in substance, in power, in glory. And this Greek word, monogenes, translated begets, describes this relationship between the Father and the Son. For example, he also talks about this, uh, J.G. Voss, and he's, he's talking about question 10 of the Westminster Logical Catechism. In speaking of the three persons of the Godhead, why do we always name the, the Father first, the Son second, and the Holy Spirit third? Because, this is J.G. Voss saying this, because this, the Bible speaks of the Father sending and operating through the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but also the Bible speaks of the Son ascending and working through the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, this order is never reversed. The Bible never speaks of the Son working through the Father or of the Holy Spirit sending and working through the Son. Again, this is, he doesn't say this here, but this is the economic trinity. And he says, question, he says this, this is J.G. Voss. What should our attitude, what, should be our attitude towards the truths of the Trinity. And so he said, we should accept them with a reverent attitude, realizing that they are divine mysteries far beyond our power to explain or comprehend. And it's the person who thinks, oh, I can explain this. That's usually where heresies come in. The Son is eternally begotten. He's the only begotten of the Father. There's a, there, there's a difference between adopted sons, like we are by faith in Jesus Christ, grafted into that one olive tree. It is different to Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God. But how do we explain this begotten like, if you were going to flesh it out, it'd be like, only generated and all this kind of stuff. It's the word we have. It's the word in human life. But we have to realize our limitations. And we need to go in the scriptures, as far as the scriptures will allow us, but go no further and have the discipline to go no further. Let's look at our next question. How are we doing for time? Not too bad. 40 minutes in. So, question 11. And again, from all eternity, from all eternity, it says this. Um, you it could bring up, before we get into question 11, about you know Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, about and the reference to uh, Psalm 2, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten, 
the this difference of opinions I tend to this day is referring to from all eternity. Um, but we always have to interpret the difficult parts. That's not an easy part to necessarily interpret with the more straightforward and the clearer parts of Scripture. Question 11 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. How doth it appear that the, that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? Answer. The Scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing to them such names, attributes, works, worship, as are proper to God only. And that's basically, and we're just going to look at some of these examples given um, as proof texts. For example, Isaiah 6, 3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's interesting how holy, holy, Holy is there used in Isaiah chapter 6. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Also I heard the voice of God saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Compare, and then compared with um, John chapter 8, verse 41. Um... In the book of Acts, train. there's a reference to lying to God as a reference to the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5, I think it is. So, but a certain man named Ananias, this is Acts chapter 5, with Sapphira, Sapphira, his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? Keep back part of the land for yourselves. While it remained, was it not, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not for your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your own heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So there's various other places as well. One of the easiest places, sadly, with one of the easiest places to go to show the doctrine of the Trinity, and these three are one, is First John five seven. But because of the the controversy that has arisen in probably last 150 years, maybe 200 years, over the minority reading of that, the Coma Johannium, um, people are reluctant to quote that anymore, which is, which is a shame. It's always been a minority reading. John Calvin knew it was a minority reading, pretty much it was well known but they knew it was still part of Scripture. Calvin saw it as um, working far greater than the flow of the Greek, etc. and so on. So it, it's a shame, I believe clearly, that First John 5, 7 and 8, it's, it's in part of it, it's called the Coma Johannium, is most certainly part of Scripture. And... Um, but I, I'm when I do things on textual criticism, I'm going to really focus on the two easier cases to make, and I'll do. I don't. It's a harder case to make of the three. The three major ones that are under threat, sadly, um, the end of Mark sixteen, start of John eight, the the Pericopi adultery, and also. First John five seven. First John five seven isn't anything new. William Cunningham in his book Historical Theology questioned it. It was one of the first ones around the time, a little bit after Griesbach, a couple other people. They started to be questioned a little bit more and more. So um, yeah, this is a. It, I'm just saying it's a shame that that scripture, which was taken out of 
the Eastern Church's part of Scripture, because you know, from what I can see, a lot of Arianism, that it is not being quoted as it was by David Dixon quotes it. And, um, yep. Anyway, I digress. So, uh, let's go on to our next question. And again, feel free if anything's confusing you on this topic, or if you've got any questions, you can fire away. Um, that's related to, or somewhat related to what we're talking about. And look, I, I mean, so many things going on today that you could talk about, and I'm, I'm relieved to not be dealing with. I've just purposely shut off most of the things that are happening in the world. I don't know about you, but I've just there's just so much outrage about things that are happening on the other side of the planet and stuff like that. I know it's sad. We should pray for it and stuff like that. But it's like, okay. Angry, upset, okay, pray about, but what can you do beyond that? God is in control of these things. And there's going to have to come a little bit, for your own sanity's sake, you're going to have to turn stuff off. I think we have an overload of information. And um, there's a danger. I think this has been beneficial maybe have something in the program that's something anchored in teaching because um look if you if if every single program is about critiques and exposing and all that, it's dangerous it's dangerous and you you can sometimes you're trying to you're trying to catch people out and it can be kind of yellow journalism it's called and that temptation it's dangerous, and it's for anybody who's involved in the blogging world or anything else. That, and would be naive to say otherwise. I think it's beneficial. I think it's needed, but you've got to be very, very careful about it. Because why? Because you get a lot more clicks, you get a lot more hits, and certain things and other things. Uh, a program like this might not be nearly as interesting to people. And look, it doesn't have to be. Hopefully, you're listening to your own minister. Hopefully, you're getting good teachings from him. Um, so, now, question 11, how does it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? The scriptures manifest that the Son, the Holy Ghost, are God equal with the Father, ascribing to them such names, attributes, works, worship, as are proper with, to God only. We dealt with that in a second ago. And remember... It's also worship, attributes, works, things that are only proper to God and to God alone. And the more we understand about God, the more we understand about his attributes or his perfections, the more we take comfort in him, the more we know about him, the more we love him, the less we'll be distracted by this world. There's a dangerous monasticism on the other extreme. I'm not saying, I'm not arguing for that at all. But I'm talking about where you're, right now, people have got to switch off for certain lengths of time. Um, find good news outlets because of COVID-19 and things that are happening. You need to have some kind of idea of what is going on. But there's got to be periods of time where you switch off. Where you switch off the outrage for a while so that you don't give yourself a heart attack in the process. And I'm not even kidding. I, I'm concerned about certain people's stress levels when it comes to COVID-19 and all that. I'm just... The... The internet has made everybody feel or think that they know more than they actually know or understand more than they actually understand. And it has been widely exposed with, in the area of science and all those kind of areas that take years and years of training and, and research and et cetera and so on, something that's not something you can crack in the same way a Zuckerberg or someone like that can crack 
uh, social media and make a lot of money or whatever the case may be, or some kind of microchip technology, you know, young people crack those things and innovate and all this. Medicine's completely different and it has been exposed badly with, we think we understand everything and we need a massive dose of humility and what we need to get good information, good advice. And um, if you're sick, get information from a qualified, respected doctor, not some quack on the internet. So um, before we finish off there, I'm going to just maybe quote a little bit more from David Dixon because um really enjoyed going through some of the things he wrote. And he talks about the different words. We were talking earlier about the word um, person. He said this, the Greek word hypostasis, subsistence, or person, whereby is understood the person of the father as distinct from the son and subsisting of himself and in himself and being as it were the, the, the original of the person of the son by an eternal and ineffable generation. Again, we don't understand that. The son never had a beginning. It started this section he talks about here, this is David Dixon, because there are three that bear bear record in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 1 John 5, 7. These three must either, sorry, these three must either three persons or three gods. This last is the height of impossibility, therefore they must be three persons, here they are put to silence and have nothing to reply. Such is the strength and power of truth, which is able to stop the mouths of the greatest rebels against religion and reason. And there is a good ground for the... And he talks about the word person. Person. These personal attributes between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And... Just ask you before, in case I forget before the end of the program, ask you for for your prayers. We're hoping in our church in Loch Brickland to have a service of worship. It's going to be a drive-in service this Sabbath day, and um, it's going to be in a car park of a a hall across the way that has uh, graciously lent us the use of their facilities for the time being. And um, pray that everything goes well. We're going to use kind of a, some kind of a transistor rate, some kind of a transmitter thing. And I don't know how they're doing it. Apparently it's some kind of short, distant, distance transmitter. And um, let's just say none of us have any experience, uh, at least I don't um, have any experience with any kind of a drive-in service. I'll be preaching there uh, once or be the service uh, this coming Lord's Day, so I'd ask for your prayers and I'd really, really appreciate that. And um, that it would encourage people, that it would equip people, uh, especially to face what we're going through right now, that the passage I'm going to be preaching on, on Joseph, on Genesis chapter 50, starting from verse, I think it's from verse 15 to verse 21. And talking about, you know, the suffering of Joseph and also the providence of God in the midst of that and what we can learn about that. And um, so hopefully keep that in your prayers as we look through that. I think it's important, I was saying earlier, that we have periods where we switch off the internet. So it's so easy to kind of fall back into the internet, fall back into this, fall back into that. Um, and... We need to be in the word. We need to just, I don't know, find some way of completely removing any time on the internet and spend it in the word of God. Serious time in the word of God that we remind ourselves of the God we serve and know that God is the one in complete control, not some shadow group. Regardless of how much power they may or may not have, although there's a lot of distorted quotations and people are taken out of context, even people I don't agree with on a worldview basis, but I digress. We serve the God is in, in control. 
And no matter what they want to do, they are limited. Even the devil himself is limited in what he can do. God is the one who's all-powerful. Question 12 of the, the, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, we'll, we'll just start this briefly. We'll finish off in a couple of minutes. But question 12, what are the decrees of God? God's decrees, answer, are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath, from his own glory, unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning men and angels. And what you believe about this will massively impact how you behave. Does God react to things like perhaps you and I do, or has he foreordained whatsoever comes to pass? Every single atom, every single particle of dust, every single microparticle, the smallest piece in the universe, every fiber of hair, every skin cell that falls from your body, every single thing has been ordained, the most insignificant things that we don't even think about, has been ordained by God before the foundation of the world. Do you believe that? Oh, that's all well and good, and that sounds great, but no, no, no. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, how does that impact how you live? If you believe that, do you think you, we would be as anxious as we are? Again, we need to know a certain amount of... We need to be cautious. We need to be wise stewards. Take good information. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. We need to love our neighbor, etc. and so on. But I'm talking about the level where it's obsessive. One way or the other, the person who's <laughs> clearly freaking out and says, don't wear masks. The other side is saying, oh, you have to wear masks or whatever the case. I, you know, I just say to people, do the best to the best of your knowledge. Don't try not to infect anybody. Do your best. Um, respect other people. I'm not going to get into that whole debate, but is God not in control? I'm not saying we act like antinomians and just kind of, we act like hippies or something. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. Duties belong to us. We do what we're commanded to do, but at the same time that we leave the results in the hands of Almighty God, that's not easy to do. And uh, in the last few days, studying through the life of Joseph, how many years did he spend in slavery, in prison? And then years later, shows that he sees the good purpose of Almighty God. Because Joseph believed in a God that foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. It will impact whether you're bitter or not. Whether how well you love your neighbor, how forgiving you are. Hopefully, it's been a blessing to you. If you've any questions, we get films at gmail.com. Hopefully, a program Monday and no, sorry, not Monday. It's now Tuesday. Programs Tuesday because Monday doesn't really work too well. I find um, something about children and the Lord's Day. I always feel exhausted Monday morning. Um, so, Tuesday, Tuesday night, 9.30 p.m. UK time, and also Friday. And if you want me to cover anything specifically, email me at mcgillfilms at gmail.com. I suppose try to keep it to things that I normally cover. There's a number of topics that I normally cover, but if there's critiques or there's things or... Um, hopefully it's quiet and um, who knows if or you have a specific question and you want to feel free to ask away so I'm Paul Flynn may God bless you all <laughs>